Welcome to another episode of Space A. Today we have a very special guest on our podcast. His name is Philip Ferguson. He is a space systems engineer and associate professor of aerospace engineering at the University of Manitoba. He is the director of the Space Technology and Advanced Research Lab, or Star Lab. His research focuses on new spacecraft guidance, navigation, control, and manufacturing technologies that can improve satellite reliability while reducing cost and schedule. His ultimate goal is to make space technology more accessible to people in Canada, such as Indigenous communities in the Arctic, empowering them with remote sensing tools that keep them safe and informed as climate change alters their traditional way of life. So quite an exciting endeavor uh, that he's taking on. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for your time uh, and being here. And we're really excited to chat with you today. So my first question for you is, Tell us a little bit more about your background, maybe something that I haven't mentioned in your intro, and how you got interested in space. Sure, thanks very much. Um, so I, ever since I was a little kid, was always thrilled by things that flew. <laughs> I, I liked the idea of birds and how they could fly wherever they wanted and how they could explore new areas. And uh, I remember when I was five learning about what astronauts could do floating around in space and exploring space. And I thought that was that was the most interesting thing ever, because uh, all of a sudden my, my world was turned on its head. I thought, wait a minute, I, I could actually be like a bird and fly around and explore new things just like uh, just like a bird. And I all I have to do is become an astronaut to do that. So that sounded great. Um, and I actually, you know, spent the first half of my life really just working to become an astronaut and the way that I wanted to do that was become an aerospace engineer and learn everything I could about putting things in space and controlling things in space and uh, you know I, I lived that dream right up until I learned that I was colorblind and was not able to become an astronaut and uh, decided that well what I really love is uh, making things move and fly around in space and so that really got me interested in dynamics and control of space systems, space robots. And uh, that's kind of what brought me here today. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible journey. And a lot of that um, childhood excitement, I can definitely see carry through in some of the work that you're doing today. So tell us about CubeSats and Microsats. What are they? And what exactly are you working on? Right, thanks very much. So, uh, you know, it's funny, because when when the space race started, people started launching relatively small satellites, like Canada's first satellite, Alouette, was a was a very small satellite, but you know, there's something that could uh, maybe a little bit bigger than a suitcase, but but still quite a small satellite. But it didn't take long for Canada and the other countries in the world to start building gigantic satellites, satellites that were the size of school buses. I mean, you think about the 80s and 90s when the space shuttle was launching satellites that we just sort of got it in our head that to go into space, it had to be big. The space shuttle was big. Saturn V's were big. These huge communication satellites were gigantic. And we sort of, in the space industry, decided that that was how space had to be. And that the reason why these satellites were big was because batteries were big and solar arrays needed to be big and the computers were big. And because these things were so huge, they had lots of inertia. So it tended to keep itself stable in space. And, you know, as as technology progressed and things became smaller and smaller, there was a group of people that started thinking, you know, I wonder if we could start making satellites smaller. And everybody knew that it was expensive to put mass into space. And so 
this seemed like a good idea, but there were a lot of naysayers. There were people that said, no, 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 you couldn't possibly do that. You're not going to have a, a fine pointing space telescope that's any smaller than the Hubble Space Telescope. And you're not going to be able to do great things with a small package. And, you know, there were a lot of really great pioneers that proved that way of thinking wrong. You know, like uh, Bob Twiggs from Stanford University really, really coined this term CubeSat. And these are small satellites that uh, are, you know, on the order of 10 to 12 uh, kilograms. I mean, microsatellites are a little bigger. They go up to about 100 kilograms, but that's still thousands of kilograms less than these huge satellites we see in uh, for communications and, you know, uh, telecommunications and whatnot. But one of the things that's great about CubeSats is that we get to do more for less. So we can do more science with less equipment. We can do more science and data collection without spending as much money to put these small satellites into space. And with the technology that's grown around us with uh, miniaturized electronics and miniaturized electromechanical systems, like for reaction wheels and thrusters, um, this is now very possible. And so now we've we finally crossed over from having CubeSats that were considered as sort of toys or for student learning only. There are now entire companies like Kepler Communications here in Canada that are building out their entire business plan based on CubeSats. It, it, it's very exciting on a number of levels, but I think the, the largest level for me is that it improves access to space. And so, you know, for a community, say, in, the, in Canada's Arctic that maybe would have looked at satellites as out of their reach, when they were costing hundreds of millions of dollars and taking decades to design and launch. Now you can maybe consider a satellite for less than half a million dollars. And I think that's really empowering for these communities. Yeah, that sounds very, very exciting. So let's focus in on what is the benefit of small satellite platforms? What, what problem is it helping to solve? So, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to cite a friend of mine, um, Dr. Rob Z, who I'm sure has probably been on this podcast or if he hasn't yet been, then I would I would encourage you to in interview him. Uh, he's a professor of aerospace engineering and the director of the Space Flight Laboratory at the University of Toronto. And, um, you know, he uh, he talks about this uh, vicious cycle versus the virtuous cycle. You know, and the vicious cycle is this idea that we have to keep building big satellites and they have to keep costing lots and lots of money. And the more, um, you know, the, the more we build big satellites, the less money we have to make satellites. So we're very concerned that they're going to fail. And so we test more and we're afraid to try new technology. And the more we're afraid, the more money we spend, and the more money we spend, the fewer satellites we can build. And so this just spirals out of control until we're building, you know, one satellite every 10 years. And they're huge. They're the size of a school bus. And we call that the virtue, the, sorry, we call that the vicious cycle. But the virtuous cycle is this idea that, you know, maybe we could do more with smaller things that cost less money. And, uh, and you know, we still test these satellites, but we test them in a smarter way, in ways that we accept mission risk for the benefit of trying, being able to try out new technologies. And so now when we get into this, we find that, well, now that our missions are taking a lot less time to design, they're taking a lot less money to launch them into space. Now we realize that we can do a lot more with them. And it was, so we're doing a lot more of these missions, which is encouraging us to do more and more technology development. And, and this is now we're in this virtuous cycle where, where we're promoting 
new technology development at a lower price and enabling this access to space that wasn't previously available when all that we had available to ourselves were these giant hundred or hundred million or billion dollar uh, spacecraft. Um, it, now schools and other research groups and uh, isolated communities in Canada's Arctic. Um, now, satellites in the form of CubeSats and microsats, these are real options for them now. And they have the ability to really change their way of life and the kinds of research that people do in schools. So, so I see them as really an enabling technology that improves access to space and uh, brings so many more technology possibilities to groups that wouldn't normally have, a, have had access to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And now I want to move a little bit away from this and talk to you about the future of guidance, navigation, and control of space missions. Where, where do you see this going in the future? And how does it align with what we're doing today? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I think like many things that are happening on the ground, we're going to start seeing the same things happening in space. You know, we're already seeing networks, communication networks that are being set up in low Earth orbit um, through, uh, through many different constellations. You know, just today I had a great conversation with some of the folks at Swarm, uh, which already has a constellation of almost 100 small satellites that are providing Internet of Things connectivity around the world. Uh, we're looking at constellations like uh, SpaceX is putting up right now uh, in their Starlink constellation, providing mm -hmm. Internet access to rural uh, rural communities around the world. Um, and so I, I think what we're starting to see is that we, as we build space assets, space is not a lonely, barren wasteland anymore. Space is full of, um, of infrastructure now that we can use uh, to develop future technologies, not just to navigate from, but to communicate with as well. Uh, the company Kepler Communications is uh, banking on this as well. You know, they're setting up their own communications network that's uh, allowing spacecraft to do uh, uh, communications with uh, other spacecraft in orbit uh, to, to basically outsource their ground stations. And I think, I think that's, um, that's a phenomenal use of small satellites. And, and I think it's really the future that we're seeing unfold in front of us right now in, uh, in Earth orbit. You know, just uh, just last week, we saw we all watched as uh, the Mars Perseverance rover landed itself on the surface of that planet. And, and you know, that as amazing as that feat was, what makes it even more amazing is the artificial intelligence and the autonomous guidance, navigation and control that was happening just to support that landing. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more machine learning. We're going to see a lot more uh, artificial intelligence and we're going to see. Uh, spacecraft that benefit from the presence of other spacecraft already in orbit. You know, th that idea isn't, isn't technically all that new. I mean, every time a space shuttle launched, it made use of the TDRS communications satellite network that was already in space. But let's face it, I mean, that TDRS satellite network really only had a few satellites in it that were very relatively low bandwidth. And the kinds of uh, networks that we're seeing in space right now to support future missions um, is pretty astounding. And uh, I'm excited to see how cloud computing, Internet of Things, mesh networks, and artificial intelligence is really going to change how we control things and navigate in space in the future. 
Yeah, I think all of those things sound super exciting. And you're obviously deeply entrenched in a lot of those um, activities in the work that you do. Um, But how can the general public be more involved? Is there a way that people can support your research? What would you recommend that maybe students do if they're interested in something like this? So do you have any tips on that? Absolutely. Um, You know, as I had mentioned, one of the great things about this move towards small space is uh, it's it's uh, accessibility that it's providing now accessibility to space programs. You know, you, you used to be that you needed to be a member of the military or work for some uh, giant company that was able to bankroll hundred million dollar space missions, and that's just not the case anymore. So now we have uh, school groups. You know, just just before we talked uh, today. I was communicating with a teacher from the Interlake School Division north of Winnipeg, and we're working with their space club. And those students just made a small sundial known as a gnomon that uh, they've tested, and that's being installed on the CubeSat that we're building in my lab right now. And so, you know, uh, being able to work with school groups and incorporate them on real space missions that's putting real space hardware into space to solve real science problems uh, is just so empowering. So I'd say... Uh, people can continue to work with their uh, their local schools, the local universities. There are 15 universities across Canada right now that are working on the Canadian CubeSat program. I'm, I'm one of them. This is being run by the Canadian Space Agency. And so that's a great way to be involved. So there's 15 teams right now that are building satellites, and they all could use a hand. Uh, I'm, I'm certain of that. Um, you know, there's also lots of organizations that people can participate in. You know, the Canadian Space Society is one of them that's doing great work involving the public in what's going on in uh, in space, um, as is uh, CASSIE, the Canadian uh, Aeronautics and Space Institute, does a lot of has a lot of events every year that bring in the public and uh, introduce the public, uh, both students and uh, professors, but also um uh, industry as well. Uh, IEEE um, the, is an electrical engineering organization that does a lot of great work in, uh, in space as well. Um, but, 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 you know, honestly, I think uh, that really even the general public, by paying attention to what's happening in the news and supporting these, uh, these local groups and our schools as we uh, expand our horizons and start to, start to really start ask questions like, you know, why, why can't we use machine learning in space? And what about 3D printing uh, rocket nozzles? You know, these are the things that require uh, these grassroots sort of support in, uh, in our communities. And it's the kind of thing that we really enjoy with organizations like the Canadian Space Society. So thanks for all the work that you're all doing at the Canadian Space Society as well. Yeah, no, it's super great. And I think even just through the this podcast, just hearing about different people, what are they working on? I think it helps uh, at least build a certain uh, network of awareness, I think, with with the public and um, especially students. I think a lot of students traditionally, you know, held the notion that maybe you need to be an engineer or a very, you know, hard science uh, person to to be involved in space, but I think more and more people are now saying, you know, we need all types of skill sets. We need, um, you know, all types of collaborative thinking uh, for the future of space. So I think that's uh, amazing, and and it was really cool to hear about the students as well that you're working with. Um, so yeah, thanks for everything that you do as well. And uh, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up the episode? 
You know, um, I, I just, uh, I'd like to echo what uh, my students and uh, my collaborators always say, and that's, uh, you know, dream big, right? Uh, we, we didn't get to where we are today by people just continuing to do the same thing that we've always done in space. We, we need to keep asking ourselves, what more can we do? And, and, uh, and ask ourselves how we can continue to grow this industry because uh, Canada, Canada has a really, really strong background in satellites and rockets and um, space robots and astronauts. And we've got a lot to build on. And I'm excited about what the future holds for us. Yeah, and, and that's a great note to end on. I think we're very excited as well. And I hopefully the general public will be excited as well. And, and you're right, Canada has a lot of talent and we just need to kind of get out there and, uh, and do it. So yeah, thank you so much again for being here today, Philip. Uh, I had a great time chatting with you and I hope you had uh, fun as well. Thank you very much, I sure did. Stay tuned for uh, more exciting episodes from the Canadian Space Society. Bye.